Good morning. Welcome to the Orchard. Online, in the building. Obviously, I am not Daniel. I am the original version, <laughs> which has been surpassed, right? That kid's doing a good job preaching, didn't he? He really is. Thank you, Daniel. I hope you're having a good time somewhere, relaxing. And today, this is called a legacy sermon so that you can understand something of who we are now and how we got to be that way, which I think will be inspiring for you. 33 years ago, next Sunday, first Sunday in May, church at Carbondale started in Carbondale. Across from the Black Nugget on Main Street, that's where we started. It's now a, a framing studio, and um, we, had, uh, we were started actually from church at Redstone that Rebecca and I and some folks had started in 1977. I know I'm going way back. And then 1990, we started Church at Carbondale because a church at Redstone had grown, and we built a building and filled it up, no room. So we asked about 30, 40 people that were coming up to Redstone from Down Valley if they would help us start a church in Carbondale. And so Rebecca and I, for the first year, I would preach in Redstone first, and then we would come down here and preach. And then finally, we had a pastor for both. So that's how the Church at Carbondale started. Now, when Church of Carbondale started in 1990, are there people here who were part of that? Were you there that first year, 1990? There were, were you, how old were you then? <laughs> Stand up if you were there. We had four survivors this morning who looked a little, oh look, over here. Yep, helped us start can you believe from that little room to here? Well, here's one of the reasons, because our motto was not love God, love people. It was Church of Carbondale, a fun place to get serious with God for people who have given up on church, but not on God. Hey, Ken, come and hold that uh, picture up. In fact, I've also got, see, we had T-shirts back then, too. This was not the days before T-shirts. Come on up here, Ken, and, and the light a little better. Hold it up in front of your face. Okay. <laughs> not my face. <laughs> now, can you imagine a church, a church that would start in the valley, and this would be how they represented themselves, advertising, and to people all around. A fun place to get serious. Hold it up higher with God. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. We really appreciate that. You're like Vanna White. <laughs> a fun place to get serious with God. Um, we grew and ups and downs. 2004, this building was built, the Gathering Center 2008. Isn't it great that we have these wonderful buildings that so many people have put work into and money into that we now offer to the community for fundraisers and weddings and memorial services? Uh, I can't tell you, during the week, you'd be amazed at the number of people who come through this building and they see what God has provided. So cool and so great. So we rocked along, and uh, it came to be in uh, 2009. Now, 2009, I realized that I was 64, one, week, one year away from maybe retiring. And uh, I was working on a sermon uh, about uh, Caleb, and I walked out into the gathering center. And I just kind of looked around, and all of a sudden, bam, 
go ahead and put the passage up from about Caleb. You see, Caleb was one of the scouts that went into the promised land and said, hey, we can do this, along with Joshua. The other ten said, no, we can't do it. But Caleb stayed with it, fought through the desert, wilderness, wanderings, conquering the Holy Land. And when it came time to portion the land out, this is what he said. He said, I'm still strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to battle as I was then. He's 85 now, by the way. Now give me this hill country the Lord promised me that day. The hill country was occupied by the Anakites, who were really, you know, tough, bad people. And so what he wanted to do, even though he was older, he said, I'm in the fight. I am going to fulfill the original vision. Bam, God hit me with that. You see, when we started the church at Carbondale, first of all, we met, like I told you, on Main Street. And then we met in the high school, but the auditorium, we couldn't use it yet because it was being asbestos removed. So we met in the lobby of the high school. If you've been over there, it's just kind of a round spot. And people had to bring lawn chairs and camp chairs. We had maybe, I don't know, 40, 50 people. Uh, I mean, we didn't look like there was much promise in us. And as I was preaching there that day, God opened my heart and shared a vision. And uh, I related it to, to the people. And I said, God has given me a promise and a vision that Church of Carbondale will grow to be 1,000 strong Christians, able to reach this valley for Christ. And we will have a building and that building will have tall, open windows bringing the outdoors indoors and tables and chairs for meals. And I was there, and I hadn't thought about that for a long time. I was in the fulfillment of part of the vision. And it's almost like God said, Doug, what about the first part? What about the thousand? Not a thousand in the pews, thousands strong in the community, you know, reaching the community for Christ, serving I said, oh, wow, what, what a challenge. And so the next time we had a leadership meeting, I told everybody, I told those guys about it. I said, well, you know, I'm near retirement, but, uh, you know, this is something that I've got to bring back up to you. And we were all just like, wow, well, that's what God said. Let's pray about it. We can't just put up a banner that says, we need a 1,000 people because we get criticized. You're just in the numbers. So we had to have a new a vision, a way to designate the new era that God was leading us into. So we started praying. And we prayed for months, every month, and retreats. God, give us a new vision. Not, not just a fun place, but give us the new vision. What is it? We didn't know. One night, one of our elders shared a dream he had had while he was sleeping one night. He said, I saw us riding across a prairie with Jesus on horses. And you, we were all together. And we rode and rode and we came up to a cliff. And looking down in that valley, it was dry and brown and parched. And we started riding down into the valley. And as we did, everywhere we rode, it became green and lush with plants and grass and trees. And we were, we were all in, somehow we knew in our spirits that's it, but what is it? From uh, dry, brown, dead, to uh, greenery and life. And someone said, I think it's, 
brought to life to bring life. And that person was Daniel. He was our family life pastor at the time. And he just said those words, brought to life to bring life. And so we met and prayed some more, and we came up with a way to do that. Rooted in Christ, growing together, bringing fruit for the valley. We were so excited to have a new vision to relay to the congregation. We wanted to share it with them. Brought to life to bring life. Uh, Ron Lark come up and, and raise. This is the first flag that we developed. Church of Carbondale. Brought to life to bring life. Isn't that great? And look, the, the tree, the fruit tree there. It was just such a beautiful dream. But there was something wrong with it. You can drop that one now. I was troubled, and I didn't know why. Don't raise the other one up yet. And so, <laughs> what's going on behind my back? <laughs> I should never have let these two. All right, so I'm going to talk to these guys. Oh, look at you. I, I asked God, I said, what, what is it? It's troubling me. And then it came to me. And so at our elders meeting one night before we were going to reveal this to the whole congregation, I said to them, guys, the name of our church is no longer appropriate because the vision is so much bigger than church at Carbondale. The new name of our church should be the Orchard. And they were all like, well, duh, yes. And so, I mean, we made a vision change and name change. How many of you know it's hard to change stuff at church? But wow. And we came up. You can show us the, the next one there. You know, that was pretty smart on her part. <laughs> Look at that, the orchard. Now, I don't know how many of you were there when this happened, and you may have written your name here on this. Would you just stand up, stand up, please? People, yeah, 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 your name is up here, and you were part of one of the biggest changes. Thank you so much. For, isn't that great? See, the idea was is that each person in the church would be a fruit tree in an orchard. And so each person, instead of people sitting in seats, can you envision, have you been to Paonia when the orchards are in bloom? Or, or have you been to Palisade when the fruit's on the trees? That's what we saw. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Laura, you did a really good job. <laughs> nice, nice support there, Ron. <laughs> so brought the life to bring life, an orchard. Um, it, was a, it was amazing. In 2011 is when the change actually was made. <laughs> And uh, for your knowledge, if you weren't here then, I had people from the first service say, it's so good to hear about uh, what happened and how we got to this place. And that's right. Orchard, every person. Um, brought to life to bring life, but that means that before brought to life, there's dead. To bring life. So in other words, you become a Christian, not just to kind of sit around until you go to heaven, but you're, you become a Christian to bring life to others like Jesus brought life to you. Now, there was a passage of Scripture in Ephesians that perfectly described the, uh, the orchard's new vision, brought to life to bring life. And uh, Paul wrote this letter to the people at a town called Ephesus. 
It's just like a town of Carbondale, Basalt, or Glenwood. And he had been there years before. Now he's in prison. He writes to them. And he loves the. In the first chapter, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus, grace and peace to you. Now, that sounds like a good way to start a letter, doesn't it? Calling them saints. Well, you're going you're gonna to have to back up on that a little bit when we get to chapter 2. Because he began to let them know how they got to be alive and saints. Chapter 2, verse 1, Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, that's a great way to start a sermon, right? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. That doesn't sound very enriching, does it? Turn to somebody and say, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Yeah, go right ahead. <laughs> we don't like to admit that in which you used to live. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, don't think it's because these were just terrible people. They were people like us. And before they came to Christ, they were dead. Did you know dead people can't really do anything about their condition? No. They were dead in their transgressions and sins. Now, we've grown up in our time, and the influence of Jesus Christ and the values of Christianity have permeated our culture and so our behavior is maybe not as far off from, you know, heaven as back then. They were maybe like this, you know, they were pagans and all that stuff. And we may be a little closer, but still, this is life, this is death. It doesn't matter what, what level of dead you're in. Dead. Now, Jesus, he had, he had begun this understanding when he said, you know, you have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. People weren't understanding this at the time. And so Paul says, yeah. And in Romans 3.23, he wrote to his friends in Rome. He said, there's no difference between Jew, Gentile, black, white, red, brown, yellow, Democrat, Republican. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we've got a problem here. And we can't do anything about it because we're dead in those transgressions, how did, we, how did we get dead in the first place? Okay, God created heavens and earth, and he created humans in his image to be able to relate and love and relationship. They walk with God, and he created them to love. He created them to love him, and he would love them. But there came a time when they decided they did not want God in their life anymore. And uh, they did something he said not to do. He said, if you do that, you'll die. But they decided that God was holding out on them, and they didn't trust God. So they broke his law, his word, and they spiritually died. So in other words, deep inside where our spirit should be, dead, empty, vacant, dead. And that's how it happened. They turned their back on God and decided to try to make it on their own in this world and said, you know, we, we, can, we can handle this. We can be just fine without you, so go away. We're on our own. And so now people are physically, biologically, mentally, emotionally alive, but there is a vacancy inside of death because there's a separation from God, spiritually dead people. Now, now don't misunderstand. It doesn't mean they're all, we're all, we're criminals, 
because we're made in the image of God, and there's enough of that left over after they walked away. There's dignity. There's uh, some goodness. Uh, you know, th- there's, there's nobleness. And so, yet inside, it's dead. But people can still, because they're made in God's image, do good things and be good people. And so, that next part of the verse, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. Now, what are the ways of the world? Oh, you see them on Highway 82 if you commute. What are the, what are the ways of the world? The ways of the world are spiritually dead people live in this life to get what they want and avoid what they don't want. And so they're like, on my own, I am going to gain significance, identity, and approval just from what's here on the earth. No, God, you stay out of it. I'm going to do just fine right here. And so what we do is we begin to try to influence other people to like us, to approve of us, to love us, to say you're valuable and you're worthy. But it's a stingy world. And so most people come up running on fumes because they're dead. And they cannot do anything about it as hard as they try to make it without God on the world. When we seek to establish our identity and worth apart from God, just on this horizontal plane, it's a futile attempt. I can give you a definition of sin in a few words. God says, I got you. And we say, no, I'm good. God says, I got you. And we say, no, I'm good. See, sin is not just robbing stores and selling drugs. Sin is when we, on our own, leaving God out of the equation, attempt to make our lives full and get what we want and what we need just from in the world. That's sin. Now, Commonly in our day and time, the ways of the world are revealed through screens. I mean, they're not all bad, but oftentimes computers, TVs, and our phones reveal to us the ways of the world, of people trying to get by and get ahead and be something and be somebody and influence somebody the ways of the world. Somebody sends you a picture of this lavish, wonderful, delicious meal, and you're looking at it on your social media account, and then you look at what, you're eating hot dogs, and you're like, oh, no, I wish I had some of that. The ways of the world are to intimidate, to show off, to be somebody by what I do, what I have, what I possess, how I look, how I dress, my car, whatever it takes, we are hungry for meaning, life, and fulfillment. Sometimes we're nice to people to get what we want out of them. And sometimes we manipulate people to get what I want. Sometimes we intimidate people. And sometimes we're mean to people. And sometimes we we neglect or reject people. So they will get in line and step up and give me what I want for my world because I need it. Other than you, I don't have it. And then it goes on to the next part. Those are the ways of the world, by the way. Ephesians 2, 2. Dead in transgressions, follow the way of the world, gets worse. Follow the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. 
were you ever influenced by the devil? And you're, you're probably thinking, is Daniel coming back next week? <laughs> and Daniel's watching it. No, Dad, don't do it. Hey, I just have to work with the material. Follow the ways of Satan? No, you don't have to be into Satan worship or stuff like that to be influenced by the enemy. You see, when we're spiritually dead, we're vulnerable to following the influence of the enemy because it's all pride, ego, rebellion, and rejecting and resenting being told what to do. Has that ever characterized you? Egocentric, resenting being told what to do? Honey, will you take out the trash? Have you ever found yourself resenting being told what to do? Because after all, who are you trying to be? And so what we do is we begin to get influence. And by the way, the only way Satan can influence you um, or interact with your life or make your life worse is by giving, presenting thoughts to you. Satan can't break your arm and he can't give you a flat on your car. But he can present thoughts to you. Thoughts like, you're such a klutz. You'll never amount to anything. I'm sure you never hear that. It always starts with, you're such a. But then, sometime later, it's like, that person's a complete idiot. And so those, those are accusations, negative thoughts, accusations that present to us. And when we take those in, you're such a klutz. You're, you're worthless then we begin to color ourselves and, and be influenced by the spirit, the evil spirit who influences people. Accusations against you, against others. And then there's fear to make you worry, to cause you because, I mean, you're spiritually empty. You have no resource other than what you can do physically, emotionally, intellectually with your will. And so you're presented with a medical diagnosis, a financial problem, a relational problem. And what you do, there's this thought of seeing yourself in a video of ruin and disaster because of what's going on now. You can project those scenarios out there. Those are influenced. Have you ever been, have you ever worried that you've, you've been had? If you've worried and you've projected the future without God in it, Guess where that came from? And then temptation. Making bad things look good. It's not so bad. Nobody will know. Now it's okay. So there's only three ways. Accusation, fear, and temptation. But you know, that is probably enough. Because a person who is worried, feels bad about themselves, feels denied of what they want, can be a person who is irritable, who's not happy with people around them. Maybe trying to solve problems by taking somebody else's stuff or by lying to get out of trouble or to appear better or desiring or coveting someone else's stuff. Okay, now if we're just out of the gate. Those are three commandments broken right there. Stealing, lying, and coveting. Have you ever coveted? Do you even know the word? Coveting means that you see what somebody else has and you want it for yourself. It's usually frustrating because you can't get it. Sometimes you kill people to get their stuff. There goes another commandment. 
The commandments are broken because we are seeking to establish just in this life, in this world, what only God can actually provide. Ephesians 2, 3. This is bad enough already. Dead, sins and transgressions, ways of the world, following the influence of the devil. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sinful nature? There's no way. Sinful nature? Let me tell you what it is. Sinful nature is simply self-centeredness, selfishness, self-protection, trying to get what I want, what I want, no matter what you want or what I have to do to get it. Our sinful nature, very self-centered, demanding or trying by manipulation to get what we want. If you don't believe that we all have a sinful nature, have you seen a two-year-old in the cereal aisle at the grocery store? Nobody teaches them that stuff. Because unfortunately, we're born dead, spiritually dead, and the sinful nature is the expression of that spiritual death. It's operation we can see, and it's, well, it's usually head time, headlines in, in, the, in the paper, but we swim in an indulgent, self-indulgent world, so we can't really recognize it in ourselves, but we can recognize it in other people, right? We can recognize that other people are being self-indulgent, but nah, not me, really. I'm kind of frugal. Somebody else is thinking that you are. So we're spiritually dead. Our sin nature operates outwardly in a selfish way, and we're following the ways of the world, and we're being influenced by the devil. In Ephesians 2, 3, the rest of the verse says, even though we're, we're guilty before a holy God, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Other translations say we were objects of wrath. Have you ever had anybody mad at you? Isn't it uncomfortable to have somebody mad at you? I mean, it's just, when somebody's angry, uh, I don't like it. I want to get away from it, or I'm going to come back and try to repress it with my anger of my own. It's not nice to be an object of wrath of another person on the earth, but we never think about what it's like to be an object of wrath of the creator of heaven and earth. Let that settle. When we're dead in transgression and sin, following the way of the world, influence of Satan, sinful nature, we're objects of wrath. Because what we have done with our decisions and our thoughts and our words, we have so corrupted the original design that God had for us. Not just physically, but we've become monstrous in our condition. Objects of wrath. We're walking dead. We're spiritual zombies. <laughs> if you like zombie movies, you know, they're all kind of dragging around and trying to eat somebody's brain. Uh, spiritually dead people are like that, craving, hungering for stuff to fulfill themselves of something that they don't even know what they need. Are you, were you spiritually dead 
Most people say, well, not me. I'm a good person. I'm not a sinner. I feel, I feel close to God. I mean, me and God are so close. Well, wait a second. We live in a time and culture where guilt and shame is not really in vogue. When's the last time you said or heard anybody say, well, I was wrong. I felt guilty about that. Oh, no. Just because you don't feel guilty of your sinfulness before a holy God, we can do all kinds of things without feeling guilty. Do you believe God's word that says we were objects of wrath, or do you believe your feelings, I'm okay? You probably saw on the news last week about the death of Alexa Bartel. She was driving on the highway over north of Denver, I think, when a rock came through the windshield, hit her in the head, and killed her. She died. It was discovered that seven or eight other cars that had the same rock come through, but without seriously injuring anyone. Now, they arrested three guys, three 18-year-old guys. And they said, they said these things in their interviews that one of them told investigators that one of the other guys slowed down so that the third guy could get a photo of the car where she had died, a memento or a trophy. These are just normal high school kids. She died, and the arrest affidavits, one of them actually said, I'm not making this up, and you can check it out, a motive. They said they were excited every time they hit a car with a rock. But one guy acknowledged, he said, you know, passing the car where she died, I felt a hint of guilt. <laughs> if, if a person only feels a hint of guilt after, after killing somebody, I mean, what else is there to feel guilty about? We don't feel it, which is an illusion, a dangerous illusion eternally. Now, Jesus one time spoke to a crowd of self-righteous good people who felt like they were closer to God than anybody else. And he said in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, 521, you've heard it said to people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment and maybe have more than just a hint of guilt. In other words, they're going to stand before God guilty, be condemned. But I tell you, anyone angry with a brother or sister will be subject to Judgment, eternal damnation. All right, in the last week, have you been angry with anybody? Don't point and don't nudge. Angry, serious. Jesus said, you thought murder was bad when you're angry with someone just as bad. When you say to brother or sister, raka, you're also subject to judgment. Now, raka is a word that you're probably not familiar with. You don't use very often, okay? Uh, it is an Aramaic word that uh, is a demeaning term. And now you probably have your own favorite chosen words to use when you're criticizing someone in your mind or with your lips. Demeaning terms. And, and so you don't say raka, but you may say something else that's pretty bad about people. And he says, anyone who says you fool be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus, calm down here a little bit. Murder's bad, angry, being angry, calling people names, going to hell for calling people names. I mean, Jesus, what are you doing? 
Well, our society, oddly, is on board with all this hell and damnation stuff. I mean, people out on the sidewalk, on the highway, I mean, they're into this, and they love hell and damnation as long as God's not doing it. But it's okay if they do. I mean, if you get cut off in traffic, sometimes words may come out. Our thoughts may happen. Well, you just go to hell. You know, you, you got in my way. You're tailgating me? Well, you, you're, you're an effing idiot. I mean, these kind of things. I mean, the world is okay with hell and damnation as long as God's not doing it. I mean, we have, we have, we're, we're many gods, and our convenience is the standard. And you get in my way, and you interrupt my convenience, then I'm going to call you out. I always thought it was kind of funny. If it really happened, if someone said to another person, you know, go to hell, and then all of a sudden the person driving that car, they're gone. How many people be left on the highway? <laughs> Not very many. It's our mini wrath. And we're like, okay, I don't like the idea of hell, but I'd like to be able to sling it around. But there's justice. I mean, mass murderers and child molesters, there's got to be something that happens to those people when they die. There's got to be some kind of eternal punishment. Jesus said, hell is a fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's gentle Jesus said that to those people at that time. So if there really is hell for people who are spiritually dead in their sins and transgressions, following the way of the world, following Satan, sinful nature, object of wrath, how do you avoid it? I'm glad there's a verse 4. I'm so glad. Paul, Paul told them this. And now, this has not been a pleasant part of the sermon, right? Uh, Paul told them this so that they would appreciate the salvation they had through Jesus Christ. See, most people think that I'm pretty close. I don't really need much grace or mercy. I'm pretty close. I'm a good person. Paul wanted them to know it doesn't matter where you are on the scale. Dead is dead. And you can do anything about it. So he says in verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, a loving God was startling in that day. Any gods they thought about were not loving and certainly had no mercy. Mercy means you don't get what you deserve. So his great love, because Jesus took the penalty, suffered what we deserved, we have mercy. Made us alive with Christ, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it's by grace you have been saved. And grace is unmerited favor or benefit. So we weren't punished for what we deserved, and we get salvation in heaven even though we don't deserve it, all because Jesus Christ suffered as the Son of God, died on the cross, and rose from the grave. The operative word is going to be, in a moment, faith. Ephesians Faith is the operative word. That's the only thing that, that we do. God did it all. All that we do is believe that God loves us, has great mercy and grace, that Jesus died on the cross, suffering the penalty for my sin, so I get what I, what I don't deserve. I believe that happened, that it's real, that there is a God, that he loves me, and I receive that. I believe it. That's, all, that's the only part. That's faith. And when I receive, I receive, you know, that dead 
uh, vacant space inside is filled with his spirit, with his Holy Spirit. And so I believe and I receive. That's what I do. And so in verse 6, God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know how this happens exactly. I was nine when I believed in Jesus. Um, I hadn't done any really big sins at age nine. I haven't killed anybody yet, and I hadn't robbed many stores. But at nine, I knew that Jesus died for me, and I was a sinner, and I needed forgiveness. When that happened, and I don't know how this works, it's like some vital part of me, God, I'm still here on earth. I'm in fourth grade. God seated me with Christ in heavenly places. Now, that's a secure position to be in. And so here, we're running around down here. But if there's part of us already, it's over, it's done, it's settled, it's secure. What does life look like from this perspective and position when you're having a hard time, but God's got it? And you're looking at it from here. Do you think you can have more peace, more love, more calm? I think so. And then it says, in order that in the coming ages he could show incomparable riches of grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I mean, this is ridiculously rich words, right? I'm going to ask you sometime this week to sit for a moment and meditate. And I want you to ask God, God, what does it look like that I'm seated in heaven with Jesus? Show me that. And God, what will it be like in the coming ages when you show me your incomparable grace and kindness? I've never seen a show like that. You've probably bought tickets to some pretty good shows. But when Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, Jesus, who died for you, shower you and show you their grace and riches and kindness, it's going to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And that may go on for a while. That's what he's planned for you. And then there's more, always more. Verse 8, by grace you've been saved through faith. There's the faith part. You believe, you receive. Not of yourself is a gift of God, not your works. You can never work off your debt. You can't uh, do more good than bad stuff and say, I'm in. You can't do more good than the guy down the block and say, I'm in. No, none of that works. Your work is simply to believe and receive. And then the brought to life, the bring life part, verse 10, we are God's handiwork. In other words, he made us, created in Christ when we're born again, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Brought to life from the dead. Brought to life from dead. Not just to sit around, but to be able to bring life to others. Prepared to do the good works, and then he prepared the good works for us to do. I mean, you don't get a better deal than that. So what is it he's preparing you to do? What are the good works he's prepared for you? And if you want in on this, and by the way, this is the transaction. You don't drift into salvation. You don't drift from death to life. It's a transaction. And sometimes, somewhere, somehow, for you to say, God, I am a sinner. I repent. I am sorry. I can't make it up. Thank you, Jesus died on the cross for me. I receive him in your spirit. 
I receive him as my Savior and Lord God. Thank you for forgiving me and giving me eternal life. In a moment, you'll have communion. The, the bread there, Jesus broke it and said, my body broken for you. This is my blood that shed for you. That's the way you get from death to life. And today, we celebrate that in the communion. And in a moment, we celebrate it and worship God. I pray for these folks. We're in a room full of people, me included, who were dead. Couldn't do anything about it. Offended you. Objects of wrath. But because of your great mercy and your grace and Jesus' death on the cross, I'm alive. And I want to bring life to other people. In Jesus' name, amen.